Our sermon passage this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produced a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, our prayer this morning is that you would shake us from dullness. That you would awaken us spiritually. Our prayer this morning is that every person in this room would see Jesus, see our need for Jesus, and be motivated to run hard after him. Our prayer this morning is that all of us would be captivated anew by the truth that indeed Christ has died for us. And if Christ has died for us, there is no need for fear. There is no need for unbelief. There is no need for doubt. There is no need to be stuck in our sin because Christ has come to set us free. So Lord, I pray today that we would be set free. I don't pretend to know the heart of every person in this room. I don't pretend to know exactly what you, our great God, need to do in this room, but I pray you would do it. You know You've made us. You created us. Your spirit dwells within us. You know our thoughts. You know our deeds. You know our actions. You know our needs. And you love your children so we don't have to be afraid. Father, would you work in power today? And Father, by your spirit, I pray that in the next few minutes, you would allow me to serve you 
by showing Jesus to your people. Would you make this happen? Would you make this happen, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you guys so much for being here today. If you haven't already, please take your Bible and turn to the book of Hebrews in chapter 3 or chapter 6, where I was just reading. Here at Redeemer, we, um, we work our way through books of the Bible. And so we are, are currently working our way through uh, the book of Hebrews, and you have chosen to be here on the day that we study the most difficult passage in the New Testament. So, welcome. Pick the perfect day to come. I said that last week and then we didn't get to all the hard parts, so I have to say that again this week. But know this, know this. Hard truths are still good for God's people. And know this. Warnings are good for God's people. I want to see if I can draw you into this passage and I'll tell you what it says. I'm a parent of a teenager. You guys know that pain? My kids are in the last service, so I can be way more transparent in this one. They don't listen to the internet, so we're good. Or at least me on the internet. Um, but, but one thing I've learned about parenting a teenager is that if you haven't figured out how to give warnings, like you're in for a long, long road, Right? But there's, there's really, if you think about warnings, there's two ways to give warnings. One is really more of a threat. Like, if you do that again, you're out of here, right? There have been a couple days within the last year where I've wanted to tell my son, if you do that again, we're going out in the backyard and we're settling it the way people from West Tennessee settle things, right? Um, I didn't threaten it. I just felt it. Okay. Be clear. But that's not really a warning, that's a threat. And threats just incite anger and make people scared, right? But there's another way to give a warning. And it goes like this. Son, I love you. Son, you're a part of my family. Son, there's nothing you can do that will take away the fact that you're a Mosley and you belong here and we care for you and we want your best. And because all of that's true, I will not allow that behavior to continue. The warning's still there, but the purpose of the warning is drastically changed. See, the purpose of the warning is not a threat, get right or get out. The purpose of the warning is, I love you so much that I'm going to lean into your weakness and help you mature. I love you so much that I'm going to lean into your weakness and help you find strength. Okay, now, all in favor of me preaching a sermon that sounds like the first warning this morning. Anybody? Anybody? Okay, all in favor of me preaching a sermon that sounds like the second warning. Okay, I even got a hand raise at Redeemer. That's crazy. Okay. Thank you, Tucker. This is Tucker's last Sunday here. He's moving to East Tennessee, so he knows he can do all kinds of crazy things back there. Behave, okay? All right. The good news is, I believe that second kind of warning is what the author of Hebrews was laying out. I do not believe for a second that the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was trying to push anyone out of the church of God. 
I do not believe for a second that the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was trying to push anyone out of the church. I, I have no inkling that that's what's going on here. Just listen to the tone of voice. Chapter 5, verse 11. I have so much to say to you, but I, I can't break through your dullness. So, let's leave the elementary and let's build up to maturity. That's chapter 6, verse 1. And then chapter 6, verse 9. In your case, beloved. Beloved's a biblical word, meaning the love of God rests upon you. It's a biblical word meaning you belong to the Lord and the Lord cares for you. And all those great promises like He'll never leave you and He'll never forsake you, they're true of you. Beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. I mean, do you hear the tone of voice oozing out of this warning it is god loves his children and i love you as a child of god so much so that i'm going to give you a hard warning because it's best for you and so i'm just pleading with you please hear this passage through that lens okay i know that i have a resting angry face and even though on the inside I'm filled with love for you, it looks like I hate you right now. I know that, okay? I don't. I don't. I, see, it just feels fake, okay? <laughs> but I'm pleading for you to hear this passage through that lens of love and concern and care. Now, one way to make that point would be to just defang the warning altogether and not let it be a warning. And that would not be loving and right for you. So there is a warning here. And I believe this is what the warning is. So those of you who are like, my dad drugged me here and I do not want to listen to you talk for 30 minutes, I'm going to give you Cliff's notes right now, okay? Perpetual dullness to the leadership of God is dangerous. Perpetual, that's ongoing dullness, that's apathy to the leadership and lordship of God is dangerous for us. So this passage is a call to awakening. It's a call to see clearly. It's a call to walk in the light. And it's a call to say, because Christ died for me, I will pursue, active word, diligently, in, with intensity, maturity in Him. That's what this whole passage is getting at. And that's what we're being invited to today. And the warning is just simply a way to prod us down that path toward maturity. Now, Ladies, I'm going to ask your forgiveness for a moment, and I'm going to speak to the men for about three minutes, okay? It'll be good for everybody. But men, I need your attention right now. There is something about the ethos of manhood in our world that says being cool and just going with the flow 
and being laid back and not being overly emotional about anything because just we're chill, right? We're taught that that's what manhood is. Because to get too passionate, to get too emotional, to get too worked up, it's not what men do is what we're told. And yet... If your favorite team wins the Super Bowl, you will throw beverages in the air and jump and do backflips for joy. You know what that is? That's earnestness and passion. And it's not girly. If your son hits a home run, you will run and sprint to get the ball and do backflips of joy. And that's fine, but you know what that is? That's earnestness and concern and care and passion. And it's not a womanly trait. So when I look at the church, and I want to look at manhood in the church, I see a lot of guys who are too cool to care. And I hope this passage destroys that. Because when verse 11 said, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have earnestness means vigor, it means intensity, it means concern, it means diligence. That each one of you have the full assurance, the earnestness to have the full assurance of hope. That means you're going to go after it even when you don't have it, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who have walked with the Lord in faithfulness. Do you, do you feel the intensity of those words? It's not fake emotion, it's not rah rah cheerleader stuff, but it's I yearn for Jesus as much as I yearn for my next paycheck and my next nap and my next round of golf. I only do two of those. But you, but you know what you care about. Men, let's, let's be leaders in the church by earnestness to walk with Jesus. And ladies, this is where I wasn't talking to you, but you all say amen. There we go, okay. So now I'm back to all the genders. Perpetual dullness to the lordship and leadership of God is dangerous. And as a catapult toward faithfulness, we get a warning. And so if you're a note taker, the first point is warning. Remember, the tone of voice of this warning is, I love you, I care for you, I want good things for you. So let's just, let's just dive into the deep end. If you're a visitor of Redeemer, we don't always get this technical. Um, this is the first sermon I've preached in a long, long time where I wish I had a big whiteboard up here to like map things out. But I don't. But we're going to dive into the deep and we're going to talk about what this hard passage means and then we're going to apply it. So here's the hard part. I'm just going to read it, verse 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. So that's the warning. Now the question is, is he says those, 
Who are those? To whom is He speaking? Who's the warning aimed at? Now, I've spent hours upon hours reading about these passages in the last two weeks. There are five kind of classical views that dangle out there amongst Christians who believe the Bible about how to interpret this. They all disagree with one another. All five of them are a little bit intellectually dissatisfying. And yet... The Bible is saying something that we need to get our minds around and believe. And so I'm going to teach with conviction. And if you disagree with me about it, you can buy me lunch and we'll talk about it. Okay? The buying part's really important. Um, okay. Now, but I think that what we see here is really important. So to whom is he speaking? He's speaking of a group of people who are amongst the people of God and leave the people of God. He's speaking to a group of people who are amongst the people of God and leave the people of God. Now, what's with their Leaving. There have kind of been two classic ways to interpret this passage. There's the one I don't hold and the one that I am teaching today. So let's start with the one that I am not teaching. One way of interpreting this is that being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, sharing in the Holy Spirit, tasting the goodness of the Word, means that these people were genuine believers in Jesus who were a part of the church. And then falling away would mean that they repudiated their faith, left the church, and left Jesus. Meaning they once were of the kingdom, and now they are not of the kingdom. I do not, capital N, capital O, capital T, think that is what the author of Hebrews is telling us. Number one, he calls them beloved. These Christians who are receiving this. Number two, he is confident that God's salvation will rest upon them. These Christians who are receiving this. And number three, we would have to put that interpretation up against many declarations in the Bible that would repudiate it. Such as Romans chapter 8 verses 38 and 39 which says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So what Romans 8, 38 and 39 is saying is that a true follower of Jesus will not be separated from Jesus and goes at great length to list things that cannot separate them. So I do not believe that we can interpret Hebrews 6 4 through 6, to mean genuine Christians falling away from Jesus and be true to the rest of the New Testament. Therefore, we have to say then, of what is he referring? Because you would say, Jamie, these words sound a lot like coming to know Jesus, right? A little bit enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in some way with the work of the Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word and the powers to come. What's he talking about? I believe the best way to interpret this 
is people who come into the church and dabble in the things of Jesus, but yet never come to fully know Christ and be delivered from their sin. And those who are of the church but not in Christ, in time will prove that they're not in Christ by falling away from both Jesus and His church. You might say, help me with that. Okay, I'm going to give you an illustration in just a minute, but let me, let me say this. Jesus gives us permission to think of His church in this way when He gave us the parable of the wheat and the tares. I, guys, I'm being really technical. I'm sorry, but it's necessary. Bear with me. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven, that is my people, my work, what I'm building, may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the seeds also appeared. Excuse me, not the seeds, the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go away and gather the weeds? But Jesus said, or the master said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both them grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So here's what Jesus is saying. It's not ideal. It's not the goal. It's not what we aim for. But the reality is, is in a fallen world, amongst the church of Jesus, there will be genuine Christians, genuine people who are in Christ, and those who are just kind of pretending and going through the motions. And what time and life and hardship does is it causes the ones who were just pretending to be exposed as pretenders. And it calls the ones who belong to Jesus to find their root and their core in Jesus. So let me make an illustration of what I'm talking about here. Think about boats. We live in a lake community. Anybody notice on the 3rd of July, I don't know why we have our 4th of July celebration on the 3rd of July, but it's a very Hendersonville thing to do. So did anyone notice on the 3rd of July the thousands of boats out on the water packed into that one little harbor to watch the fireworks? Okay. A boat that's unanchored out in the open lake does what? It drifts, right? And in time it's just going to drift farther and farther away from its, its starting point. An anchored boat stays still. Well, on the 3rd of July, what happened is there was probably one or two boats that were anchored, but there were thousands of boats piled into this narrow harbor, and none of them were drifting because some of them were anchored. Anchoring would be belonging to Jesus. And the other ones were not drifting because they were being trapped in by the anchored boats. They were just kind of stuck there, right? But at the end of the fireworks, when the boats start to dwell out, what would have happened to the boats, the, the, the boats start to leave and, and the, the crowd goes away, the boats that aren't anchored, what's going to happen to them? They're going to start to drift because they're not anchored. 
And so, so the reality of the kingdom, the reality of the church, the reality of belonging to Jesus is we're boats. And our only hope to not end up out at sea is to be tied to Jesus. That's it. Church membership, I don't care. Baptism, I don't care. How many times? I don't care. Missionary, I don't care. Leader in the church, I don't care. You dress better than me today, I don't care. Your kids are better behaved than mine, I don't care. What matters is anchored to Jesus. And what the scripture says is that people who are really anchored to Jesus will wax and wane. We will drift, but we'll be pulled back. And we'll drift, and we'll be pulled back. And we'll drift and become dull of hearing, and we'll be pulled back. Why? Because we're anchored to Jesus. Jesus pulls his children back every single time. But one piece of this warning is, look out lest you be a boat hanging out at the fireworks show who's not anchored to Jesus. Because as the other boats drift, you're just going to drift and drift and drift and drift and drift until you come to the point where you say, am I not anchored to Jesus? So one of the purposes of this warning is to speak into the church and, and cause us to ask this question. Am I anchored to Jesus? And what it means to be anchored to Jesus is, have I come to a place, not just with my mouth, not just with my feet, not just with a pencil, not just in some religious activity, but have I come to a place where I have seen the end of myself the brokenness of my sin, fallen on my face, cried out to God, I need a Savior, Jesus is my Savior, help me, I'm in need. Help me, I need you. Forgive me because I've fallen from you. That is biblical faith. And Christians live like that. We know we're anchored to Jesus because we're constantly on our face, constantly crying out for help. We're not, we're drifting, but he's going to pull his children back. I'm not sure if you should be thinking right now. Hold on. Number one, do not be thinking about anybody else. This is about you and the Lord right now, okay? Now, I'm not sure if you should be thinking about, well, in the past, I did this. As much as you should be thinking, am I today on my face crying out with Jesus, help me, heal me, save me, redeem me, make me yours? Because the the cry of the heart of a genuine believer is that. And Jesus will never cast away that cry. So purpose number one of this warning is for us to ask ourselves, have I made it all these years and been deceived to realize that I'm not tied to Jesus? So I'm going to assume that there's somebody here today who's wrestling with that question. What would it look like for me to not be tied to Jesus? I would say this. Your life is perpetually filled with dullness and apathy toward God and his word and his leadership and his holiness. Your life is characterized by no remorse over your sin and no brokenness over your sin and no repentance for your sin. And if so, you're just given at the surface level to get your wife off your back. Your life is characterized by no love of Christ and no genuine thankfulness for what he's done for you. 
And if that's you today, what the Lord is showing you is you need to hear this warning because you're not tied to Jesus, but that is a gift. You might feel your world falling in around you. You might feel your world cratering around you. And I don't care if you're one of our elders here. I don't care if you're one of our deacons here. I don't care if you're a Sunday school teacher here or a community group leader here or a children's ministry leader here or if you are our staff member here. I don't care. If the Lord's tearing that veil down, let him tear it down. It's a gift. It's good. You don't have to fear the Lord when you approach him at Christ. And if he's tearing that down, let him do it because it is far better than pretending to know that you're anchored to Christ. Okay, now, I know, what, I know what we Christians do. We go, okay, I'm a Christian. This passage, he's not talking to me. Wrong. Wrong. There's a second purpose for this warning. And so that I'm not doing plagiarism, I want to give credit where it's due. Uh, a man named Tom Schreiner, who was a professor of mine in seminary, has really furthered this view, and it's really, really helpful. He says that these warnings in Hebrews, there's five of them. And by the way, we've only down three of them, so we got two more to go. Come on back, y'all. Okay. Um. But he says one purpose of these warnings is God will use the warning to carry his children all the way to the end. So when you say to your child, don't touch the hot eye, do you want them to touch the hot eye so you can be vindicated as being right? No, you want them to not touch the hot eye because the last thing you want to do is go to the emergency room on Sunday afternoon. Or maybe you have more loving reasons than I. But you, you say, don't touch the hot eye because you don't want your children to hurt and be burned. Maybe you say to your teenager, like, be careful in that relationship, not because you don't want them to be happy, but because you know that relationship could be detrimental to them. And God, through the author of Hebrews, says, be careful. Don't fall away as a way to say, pursue maturity. Because the opposite of falling away is to pursue maturity, which is what he's after in verse 10 and 11. The warnings are intended to carry us all the way to the end. So what I'm saying is this warning has work to do in every person in this room. This warning could be, I'm out at sea and I need Jesus. This warning could be, I need Jesus and I need maturity and I need to be pushed to pursue him with vigor. But either way, the warning has work for every single person in this room. Now let's deal with the other hard part of it. You're like, that was, that was just a piece of it. Verse 4 says, For it is impossible to restore again this person to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now I want to be really clear. This passage is not teaching that a pretender who falls away can never come home. That is not what's being taught here. What's the verbs there in verse um, seven, I mean, 6 and 7, they're present active verbs. Which means the person who is currently in the act of rebelling against God is currently holding Jesus to contempt 
and is currently re-crucifying him again and again, in that active rebellion cannot be restored to repentance. But coming to the end of the rebellion, looking back at the Lord, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. So there's not some like, like I think often Christians or maybe what I'm calling a pretender would read this passage and say, I can't admit I'm a pretender because this passage says there's no hope for me. No. What this passage says is there's no hope for you while you're pretending. So if the Lord is bringing you to the end of the pretending, come on down. It's a gift. Jesus is there. He is good. And He stands ready to give His grace and His mercy to those who call upon Him. Okay. I'm going to end this way. Verses 7 and 8 say, you're a field. And God pours rain on all the fields. It says, be the field who bears fruit. Verse 9 says, Beloved, we feel sure of better things, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. Here's the question for you all to ponder today. Not if, but what is making you sluggish and dull of hearing toward the word and the leadership of the Lord? Second question is, if the Lord's drawing you to respond, will you purpose to pursue maturity with vigor and not settle for dullness and sluggishness anymore? I want to end with this illustration. I just thought of it during the last song, so it could be really bad, but let's try it anyway. Seems fun, okay? Uh, baseball is kind of a big deal in my family, and um, we went this spring on a well, we went on a two week vacation, and then my kids had to go to a family reunion for a week, and so that made about three and a half weeks where my son didn't pick up a bat or throw a baseball. So he was dull and sluggish, is what I'm trying to say. And so he came home, and I said, "Hey, buddy, we need to go out and practice." And he's like, "Okay." So we went out to practice. And you know what happened, right? It was awful. It was awful. Couldn't hit, couldn't throw, couldn't catch. It was brutal. I mean, I was a little bit embarrassed. And we got in the car, and my son started crying. And he said, I can't play anymore, Dad. I'm done. He's not. I said, but you'll be okay. I mean, I don't know what to say, so I'm just trying to say the encouraging things that dads are supposed to say, you know. Like, like but you'll be okay. Like, you just got to keep going. You just got to shake the dullness off. You got to shake the rust off, right? He's like, okay, okay. I don't think he believed me. I'm not sure I did. But um, 
about a week later, we were at a team practice. And I was overworking with some kids on the other side of the field. And I hear a killed scream from the batting cage. I'm back! (laughs) And I don't think anybody got it, right? Like, I think to everybody there, you just have a silly kid bragging about something that happened in a batting cage. But to me, that was the moment where he was like, yeah, it took four practices. And it felt right again. Here's what I know. I'm sending you out here today to say, I'm shaking off the dullness. I'm going to open the Bible and start reading. I'm going to be honest with my wife for the first time about what's really going on with me. And we're going to pray together about it. And I'm here to tell you that you might need to call me after all that's over because it might not feel great. But kicking off the dullness never feels great the first time. It just doesn't. And if it does, you're really sore the next day, right? But what I'm praying for you is that in about a week and a half, after continually saying, I'm going to fight the dullness, that you'll have that moments of exuberance, like my son in the batting cage, where you're like, it feels right again. I feel the presence of the Lord with me. Feel his love. Feel his mercy. I want to rest in his grace. Because I think that's the work God's eager to do in you. So maybe some of you need to be scared by this passage, but I think most of you just need to be called to lay aside dullness and come running after Jesus. It's worth it. Let's do it together. Now I'm going to read this one last verse. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises. If you want to circle in your Bible, circle the word imitators, okay? God gave us the church so others can show us how to walk with Jesus. And that cuts both ways. If you don't know where to start today, look around and ask somebody to help you. But it cuts the other way. If you're walking in joy, pull somebody with you. If you're walking in faith and mercy and grace, take somebody with you. Look around and say, let's do this together. Because that's how God built the church. And a theme running all throughout the book of Hebrews is let those who have gone before encourage you now. There are people in this church who've been walking with Jesus longer than many of us have been alive. Do you know how arrogant it would be of us to not lean into that? And just say, hey, let me buy you lunch and you talk to me about what you've learned. Some of you are going to get 15 lunch invitations this week. I encourage you to eat all 15 of them. This is what God's eager to do here, and I think this warning passage is intended to help us. Our Father and our God,
I pray that you would help us You would help us to follow after you. You would cause us to care. You would cause us to be earnest. You would cause us to love Jesus and bear fruit. And you would not let any of us settle for anything less than being tied to Christ. Anchored forever. This is my prayer. Now I pray you would take my words as much as they're right and true and helpful and good. And cause much to happen over these people gathered here today.